Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. And we are going to look at this little four-chapter book this evening. And one of the things that made me want to preach this book of Jonah is because Jonah is one of the most popular Old Testament stories in the Bible. There are a handful that come to mind. When you think of the biggest, most popular, or the ones that stand out the most in the Old Testament, right? You probably think of Noah's Ark and the flood. That's a pretty big one. You probably think of David and Goliath. It's a big one. Maybe Daniel and the lion's den. Maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But you're also going to think of Jonah. And one of the reasons I think this is so is because just what you find in the book. The big thing that we all know about Jonah is the giant fish. We all know that. You were, wait, you were probably waiting to see how long into the sermon it took me to mention the giant fish. And we all know that about Jonah. That is why the book of Jonah has become so popular. And I think all of you know that Samantha and I have four children now. And so we have a lot of children's Bibles at our home. And I looked through all of our children's Bibles, and I didn't count to see how many we have, but I was expecting that every single one of these children's Bibles has the story of Jonah in it. And to my shock, we have one that does not have it. I'm going to have to send that one back. But it is in every other children's Bible because it connects so well with children. When children hear about a giant fish that swallows up this dude and he lives in the belly of the fish for three days and then gets thrown up onto the land, kids love that. And let's be honest, we all think that's a great story. And so because of that, because of what happens to Jonah in the book, it has become such a popular story for kids, but also just throughout Christian history. But the thing that I noticed about a lot of these children's Bibles is that a lot of them talk about Jonah and they talk about the the things that happen with Jonah, especially with the giant fish. But a lot of them never even touch on chapter four of the book of Jonah. And what we'll see tonight is that chapter four, I think, is the biggest point in the book of Jonah. So we'll obviously get to that here in a little bit. But the book of Jonah is popular, we're familiar with it, so we don't need to rehash the whole story. But I want us to look at a couple different things about the book of Jonah. Number one, it's one of the minor prophets, okay? There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, They're not minor because they're less significant. It's just because the length of their prophecy or the book is much smaller. Uh, And so they're considered minor prophets because of that. But even among those 12 minor prophets, one of which Jonah is, Jonah is very different from the other minor prophets, mainly because the book of Jonah contains almost no prophecy. If you think about all the other minor prophets that we've been preaching through these last couple weeks and the ones that we're going to preach through in the next couple weeks, there is some sort of prophecy. And what I mean by that is there's a message from God to the prophet that the prophet is to bring to a certain people, 
whether that's Israel or whether that's another group of people, but there's a message from God to the people. Now, we do have that in the book of Jonah. We're going to see that God is telling Jonah to go to a specific place and give them a specific message, but that is like a minuscule amount of what we find in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is, I mean, it's very, very, very small. When we look at the book of Jonah, you can kind of see it as four different chapters that almost look like four different acts of a play. If you've ever gone to a theater and seen a play, they usually have different acts. And what happens between the acts is a, a massive scene change. And so you go from one location, then they dark out the stage so you can't see, and there's you know people running back and forth, changing out all the, the background art, and then they, they turn the lights on, and you're in a new location. And so you could look at the book of Jonah, and it almost seems or appears like that is the case. In the majority of chapter 1, they're on the ship or out at sea, and Jonah ends up in the sea, right? The second chapter is all of Jonah in the belly of the big fish. And if I accidentally say whale, it's just because I've been told that a million times growing up, but the story doesn't actually call it a whale, it just as a giant fish, so that's a precursor. And then in chapter 3, you've got another scene change where Jonah is in Nineveh. He's actually in the place where God called him to go in chapter 1. And then in chapter 4, Jonah is sitting outside of Nineveh observing all that has happened. And we see all that happens uh, internally uh, with Jonah. And so we see that it's almost like four different acts that we see here played out uh, along the book. So... Among these four chapters, we have a couple themes that present themselves throughout the book. And I want to take a few minutes to look at some of these themes. The first one being God's presence. So I want us to look at a couple verses here in the book. Let's start uh, at the very beginning. Look with me at Jonah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So this first theme is that God is present. God is present, and he begins to speak to Jonah, and Jonah's response is to try and flee from God's presence. If you look down at uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, so Jonah is giving a defense to the, the other sailors on the boat, and he says, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from, and what is your country? And of what people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, so God is present where Jonah is. God calls out to Jonah, and Jonah's response is to try and flee from God. But he can't. He can't flee from God, and we can't either, because God's presence is everywhere. Okay, he tries to go to the farthest place away from Nineveh that God has called or that, that he can go. And even there, he, God is with him. God knows where he is. I read the wrong verses just a minute ago. Look at verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. 
You see, when Jonah tries to run from the presence of God, God knows exactly where he is. God knows exactly where to send that tempest. God knows exactly where to send those waves to crash over on which ship because God knows exactly where Jonah is. Jonah cannot flee from God's presence any more than you and I can flee from the earth's atmosphere. We can't. We cannot get away from it. And Jonah is not able to get away from God's presence. And this should be a reminder for us tonight that while that is a comfort in a lot of times, it's also a warning, right? It's a comfort in that even when we feel distant from God, and let's be honest, that's a category in our lives. As Christians, there are plenty of times throughout our life where we feel that God is distant from us. We feel like God is not near. But the Bible would tell us that it's impossible to flee from his presence. It's impossible to be removed from God's presence. And so that's a comfort to us. But it's also a warning to us in that when Jonah is trying to flee from God, he cannot, right? It's a comfort in when we feel distant from God and we're not trying to feel distant. But it's also a warning in that if you're trying to flee from God, if God has called you to do something and you are trying to avoid it and avoid him and flee away from that, it's not possible. You cannot get away from God's presence. God's presence is there. Now, Knowing that or establishing that point, we also see that under this theme of God's presence, there is a category of a follower of God who is in active disobedience to God. And that's the verses that I read earlier that I meant to, to save for right now. So this storm comes upon the ship, and the ship is threatening to break up, and they find Jonah sleeping, and they wake him up, and they're like, dude, pray to your God that maybe we will be saved. And so then they get to asking him, who are you? What's your occupation? What are you doing? And this is when he tells them, verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Does he really? Because he's trying to flee from him actively. But he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea in the dry land. Right? It is possible to be a follower of God, but yet to be in active rebellion against him. We need to know that that is a category of people that maybe we know some who have been like that. Maybe we know people who've claimed to be a follower of Jesus, but yet they are living in active rebellion but let's also be reminded that if that is the case, you cannot escape from God. You cannot go where he won't find you. You cannot go where he is not aware of you or where he does not know what you are doing. God is present everywhere. The next thing that we see here throughout the book is that God is in control. God is in control. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Look down at verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. You think that's a coincidence? You think God made that happen? Look down at chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 17 first. 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now look down at chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now look over at chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And the sun, uh, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. You see, in all of these situations, in all of these parts of the book, we see that God is in control of all that is happening. He's in control of the wind and the waves that come upon the boat. He's in control of the great fish that's there to swallow up Jonah when he's thrown overboard. He tells the fish when to spit Jonah out and where to spit Jonah. And God is there when uh, this, this uh, plant grows over Jonah to provide shade. And God sends the worm to eat the plant. And when the sun rises, God sends that scorching wind to make his, uh, to, to give him discomfort. So we see in lots of different ways all throughout this book that God is in control of all the things that are happening to Jonah. You know, if we look back at that first example we read where God hurls the, the great wind upon the sea, it reminds us of perhaps Jesus in the boat with his disciples in the New Testament where the, the storm comes upon them all suddenly and the, the disciples are scared and Jesus is sleeping in the boat and so they wake him up and what does Jesus do? He simply speaks, peace, be still. And the waves stop and the wind stops immediately because it's listening to the voice of its creator. You know, this is a big reason why we pray. We just spent some time praying every Wednesday night when we're downstairs. We spend a lot of time praying. And the reason that we pray, or one of the big reasons that we pray, is because we realize that we are not in control of all things. There's a lot of situations that were mentioned just tonight that we have no control over. But we pray because we know God does have control over them. We pray because we know that God is able to do something in those situations when we are not. And the book of Jonah is reminding us of that truth, that God is in control. God knows what his people are doing. God knows where his people are. And God is actively in control of all things that are surrounding us. And so because we know he's in control, because we know he is that powerful, all-powerful, we pray to him. And we know and we trust that he will do what is right and that he will do what is best. So our themes so far have been God's presence. God is present everywhere with his people. There is nowhere we can go to flee from his presence. God is in control. All these aspects of the book, all these things that are happening, God is the one making them happen and making sure that they happen. Another theme that we see is God's power to save. And this was part of our call to worship uh, tonight from Jonah chapter 3. But look at what happens. So in, in the, the beginning of the book, God calls out to Jonah and says, Jonah, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so that's, that's the prophecy, that God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and to call out against it because their evil has come up before him. And he doesn't do it. He disobeys. But then we look at chapter 3, and chapter 3 begins with a second chance for Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And finally, Jonah obeys, even reluctantly obeys. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city about a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's the only thing that we know that he says to the people of Nineveh. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But now look at the response. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from the uh, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, when we think about people repenting, especially in our context in 21st century, we always talk about you, you need to present them with, with the gospel. The gospel needs to be what you explain to them, that man has fallen, that God is perfect, that God has sent the, the Savior in Jesus, and that if we believe by, by faith and repentance, then we will be saved. We will be forgiven, right? We need to give a full gospel uh, proclamation, and we should. But we are told here in the book of Jonah that Jonah speaks the words that God had told him to speak. Now, from us, reading it in the 21st century, it seems like how could anyone get saved when Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown? But that's what God told him to say. And when the servant of God, Jonah, is obedient to the call of God and speaks the word of God, we see how God's word changes people, how it changes an entire city. And it says that the word goes all the way to the king of Nineveh, the top dude. And he issues this decree that the entire city should fast. Even the beasts should be included in all that is happening in their turning from their sin and from their evil ways. And so we need to be reminded from the book of Jonah that God's message has the ability to save far more than we may believe. I think oftentimes we kind of get jaded or we feel jaded when it comes to telling people about Jesus, sharing with them the good news, because oftentimes if we even do it, we don't see big, awesome, miraculous results. 
And because we don't, the thought starts to creep into our mind that maybe, maybe this sharing the gospel is not as good or effective as we've always been taught that it is. Right? We can tend to think that way. When we are conditioned to see that it doesn't seem to do what it did with Jonah over and over again, we start to get pessimistic about it, don't we? We start to think, I don't even know if it's worth it because I don't see anything happen anytime I share the gospel. We can think that way. We can fall into that rut. We can start believing that. And we need reminders from the Bible that God can save even with a message as simple as, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God is the one who changes hearts. We need to be reminded of that. God is the one who works through the message that is preached. It's not us. It's not in how good we are at communicating that message. It's how faithful we are to do it. God is the one who will provide the results or who will change the hearts. But we need to be reminded, and Jonah is a reminder, that God has power to save and to change lives. It's very evident here from the book of Jonah. But lastly... And this is where we get into chapter 4 of Jonah. And like I said, this is the chapter that most children's Bibles tend to somewhat ignore. The last theme that I want to look at tonight is the mercy of God. Okay, so we have looked at God's presence and how he is present with his people and there's nowhere we can go to escape his presence. We've looked at God's control and that in all these aspects of Jonah's life, all the things that happen throughout this story, uh, God is clearly in control of all of it. We've seen that God has the power to save even a wicked place such as um, Nineveh. But now we need to see God's mercy or God's compassion. And this is, this is really the crux of the book. Right? If we just look at Jonah chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's some great things in there. And we obviously see some wonderful, awesome truths about God. We get the story of the great fish, and that's wonderful and all that. But chapter 4 really holds a mirror up to ourselves to see, man, here's some issues that Jonah has. How are we often just like Jonah in chapter 4? So I want to read chapter 4 in its uh, entirety. It's not long. And then let's talk about a few things that we see here in the chapter. So we'll start actually with chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city gate and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Chapter four of the book of Jonah is phenomenal because we see this prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh to begin with. The book starts with Jonah disobeying the call of God. But it ends with him finally obeying. After his three-day stay in the, the Fish Belly Hotel, he ends up going to Nineveh and preaching the message that God told him to preach. And I think secretly what he wanted in his heart was, I'm going to preach this message, and then I'm going to sit here and wait for 40 days, and I'm going to just chow on popcorn while God destroys this awful, God-forsaken place. I think that's what Jonah was thinking. And so when God sees them repent, when God sees all that happens, he does not bring the disaster upon them that he said he would bring. And look at what chapter four, verse one says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. Now, we may wonder, why is Jonah so mad that God would not destroy Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians, you can read about throughout the Old Testament, they're enemies of God's people. And after all of this, they would eventually uh, destroy Israel uh, and take them into captivity and do a lot of awful things. And so there's probably a lot of reason to believe that Jonah grew up being taught by his parents that Ninevites or Assyrians in general are just bad people. We don't associate them. We don't like them. They're bad. They're, they're, the, they're the enemy or whatever, however you want to say it. So it seems like Jonah has a deep-seated hatred of these people. And perhaps this is why he does not want to go to Nineveh to begin with. And he even says that in uh, verse 2. Of chapter four. And he prayed to the Lord God and he said, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why Jonah doesn't want to preach the gospel to these people that he hates, because he doesn't want God to show steadfast love to them. He does not want God to relent from the disaster that he said he would bring on them. And now that God has, Jonah is so mad. So then it seems like we get this weird little tangent here where he goes outside of the gate and he's, he's in this booth and then God makes this plant to rise up. But look what happens that, when that happens. Verse uh, five and following. So Jonah goes outside of the city to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
So the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Notice what it says next. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What does the plant do? Shades him from his discomfort. See, Jonah looks at the Ninevites and because they are receiving mercy, it makes him angry. But when this plant provides him temporary relief from his discomfort, that makes him exceedingly glad. And then we see the very next day, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appoints a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. And then when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so he was faint, and he asked that he might die. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. He says, here you are, Jonah. You're all wrapped up in this plant. You're so happy about this plant when it comes up. And then when it's gone, when it dies the very next night, you're so mad that you want to die again. He says, you didn't do anything to make that plant grow. You didn't do anything to make that plant provide you shade. God is saying, I did that. But yet you're angry enough that you want to die because it's gone. And then verse 11, which ends in maybe the most puzzling way a verse could end. He says, and should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. See, the point that God is making is that Jonah is taking for granted that God has showed him mercy because Jonah thinks that he deserves mercy. And if we're all honest, we all probably think that we deserve mercy too. We think real highly of ourselves no matter what we know that we've done, no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how much sin we found ourselves in, we can always look at ourselves and think, I deserve mercy. I've been coming to church long enough. I've been reading my Bible long enough. I've completed my Bible reading plan enough times. I've said enough prayers. I've signed up for enough 24 hours of prayer. I've even done the late shifts that nobody else wants to do. Man, I'm good. I deserve for God to show me mercy. And yet the question is, we are easily, we easily decide for ourselves who doesn't deserve mercy. And for Jonah, it's the Ninevites, it's the Assyrians. They are the ones that are beyond the ability to be shown mercy by God. But who is that for us? Who do we look at and say, mm, can't wait for God to strike them down? cannot wait for them to get the judgment that's coming to them. And let's be honest, we think that way. We really do. It's easy for us to maybe think of our enemies in the Middle East like that. As a veteran who served in Afghanistan alongside other troops, there is a deep-seated hatred for Middle Eastern people in America. There really is. 
And maybe, without even really voicing it, we have thought deep down in our hearts, mm, man, those people are wicked. What they did on September 11th, right? what they've done to our troops over there, cannot wait to see them receive God's wrath. We probably would never say that, but maybe we've thought it in our hearts. Or maybe even closer to home, right? There are people within our own country that we would say are on the liberal spectrum, right? They're trying to push uh, homosexual marriage and they're trying to push abortion rights, right? And we see that as an attack on Christianity. And maybe we would never voice it, but we've thought deep down in our hearts, man, those people are wicked. Cannot wait to see God's judgment fall on them. You see, we need to be reminded that we don't decide who receives mercy. How would we respond if God called us to go to those very people that we hate, those people that we've thought, "Mm, can't wait for them to receive judgment? How would you respond if God called you to go preach the the good news to them? Would you be willing? Would you try and ignore God's call? and disobey and flee? Or would you go? Would you bring the good news of the gospel? And would you be happy if they repented? Or would you feel like, hmm, they're getting off free. They're not getting what they really deserve. See, you and I, we don't get to decide who receives God's mercy and who receives God's compassion. Because just like I said a little bit ago, we always look at ourselves very favorably and think, man, I deserve God's mercy. I've done enough. I've paid my dues. But the reality is no one has. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the fact that God has shown us mercy is beyond what we can ever comprehend. So let's be people who understand That God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And let's take that message to everyone who rightfully does not deserve it just as we were. And let's rejoice when they repent. Let's rejoice when God uses the preaching of his word to transform lives. Those who were his enemies, he has made his friend. Just like the song we sang, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. He's our friend. We didn't deserve it. But yet he showed us mercy. Let's rejoice with those to whom God shows mercy, whether we think they deserve it or not. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Jonah. We thank you so much for the the interesting details about the great fish who swallows Jonah and spits him back out on the land makes it such a a memorable story, one that truly does stick out. But God, I pray we would never neglect or forget or ignore this last chapter of the book of Jonah. It is so insightful. It is so helpful for us to look deep down at our own hearts and to see whether or not we are rejoicing at the fact that you show mercy to the undeserving or whether or not we are begrudging it. God, help us 
Help us to see ourselves for who we really are. That there is no one righteous, no, not one, and that includes each and every person in this room. God, were it not that you are a gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, that we would have never received grace or mercy. But God, you have given it to us through your Son, Jesus. And we praise you for him. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.